you would recognize that the theme in the songs we sang this morning focus on the opportunity we have to know the love of Christ and to be wholly satisfied in Him. Now we know, right, cognitively, that what is afforded to us in relationship with Christ exceeds anything that the world has to offer. We know that, right? The issue is, do we believe that? Have we taken that knowledge and has it pressed into our hearts to transform our affections and allowed us to make in real time, real space, in the flow of real life, choices that are consistent with that truth? I've been convinced uh, over the last couple of years that growing to know the love of Christ is really the secret, if you will, to the life of sanctification and holiness, of service, of evangelism, and in missions. It's an anchoring in the love of Christ that is what will transform us when we come to not just know, but have genuine faith in these great truths. Do you believe? Not just know, but do you believe? that Christ satisfies? In those quiet moments where you make choices of how you spend your time, what do you run to that you believe is going to satisfy? It's not that we can't enjoy the pleasures of this life and things like this, but if we're satisfied first in Christ, then we don't seek to find satisfaction in the things of this life in a sinful, idolatrous way. Most of us, and certainly those who are lost and unredeemed, are on a quest every day of their life to find something that's going to satisfy the soul. And what we have available to us in Christ is the ultimate thing that will satisfy our soul. I will argue that we were actually created to experience that kind of relationship with Christ. But sometimes there's a big gap between what we know and what we believe, isn't there? And that gap is informed by all kinds of other views that are preached to us in a variety of ways through popular media and the culture that want to tell us there is another perspective on love. There is another uh, aim that will satisfy really the longing of our soul. And the simplest way to understand those messages is that they are lies from Satan. But to the extent that those lies infiltrate our thinking and inform our beliefs and lead to our choices, we have work to do to begin to recognize where we choose to believe the lie versus the truth. Over the last couple of years, uh, in just my own personal devotional life, I've determined that I'd like to study more about the love of Christ. And not just the love of Christ, but the love of the Father, the love of the Spirit, the love of the Son, and the relationship that we're invited to enjoy with them through the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. And it's led me to a study over the last, uh, like I said, year to two years, of trying to read more and more of the Puritans, who, as I said when we began this morning, were under persecution. And when you're under persecution, it begins, you begin to really evaluate and take more seriously what is real, what is true, what is right, what are you going to risk your life for? And these men out of that kind of persecution, anchored themselves in the word of God and concluded that the foundation of their life and their hope was knowing Christ and knowing him in a, a more personal and intimate way. And so there's this rich treasury of writings by the Puritans on the love of God, the love of Christ. And what I want to do, I have the opportunity to teach this morning and next week, is just a two-part series. I want to speak to you about the love of God. And I want to share with you some of the things that I've gleaned from my study of Scripture and gleaned from the survey of, of Puritan writings. I'll make some book recommendations along the way if you want to join me on this journey that you might pick up in the book shack and, and cultivate uh, a growing knowledge of a love of Christ in your own life. I want to serve you that way. And this is a survey. I can't begin to do justice to the doctrine of the love of God. But I want you to understand some key realities that if you choose to believe them and you anchor your heart in these truths, they will lead to transformation in your priorities, your ambitions, your relationships, and ultimately your enjoyment and satisfaction of your walk with Christ. And so I come this morning simply wanting to serve you to that end. 
When we think about the word love, as I said, uh, there's a lot of messages that come to us, don't they, in the course of a day. One of the ways that we hear love defined is most often in the lyrics of the songs that are most popular in our day. And if you listen to these songs, they will begin to preach to you a certain definition and understanding of love. And I want to suggest to you it greatly differs from what we find in Scripture. Now, I'm a child of the 80s, so you're going to have to hang on with me, okay? Because I'm going to take my friends back with me. When I think about some examples of these sermons being preached through uh, some of the world's most famous musicians, and as we do and we look at this, we'll see that what their perspective or wisdom on love is, it just reveals their confusion, it reveals their cynicism, and their misguided thinking. And yet these are the things that we hum and we sing and just keep reinforcing. And we reinforce them not just individually, but they become part of our cultural conscience. Here's an example. Tina Turner, she may not have been your favorite, but she's well known for a song that's entitled, What's Love Got to Do With It? What I appreciate about Tina's song is she's honest. She's asking the questions really that everybody's asking. What has love got to do with it? Listen to what she sings. What's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. What's love got to do with it? It's a secondhand emotion, right? So she's now reduced love to this thing called a secondhand emotion. What she means by secondhand, it's something that's in reaction to how others treat you. It's very subjective then. It's very dependent upon others. And then she makes this honest statement, who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And that's the conclusion most people make. Through the experience of life and the failure in human relationships and their experience in love, they conclude that I really just don't want to take the risk of loving again. I'll only be hurt. Another famous diva who I think preached the theology of our day was Whitney Houston. She was bold enough to entitle a song this, The Greatest Love of All. And you know this song. You're going to hear it in your mind as soon as I start to read the lyrics. She says, I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Now listen, show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. Listen to the second verse of this famous song. She says, everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to, but I never found anyone who fulfilled my needs. A lonely place to be, and so I learned to what? To depend on me. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. And then... The song crescendos with these profound words. Because the greatest love of all is happening to me. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. See, the person who knows nothing of the love of Christ is left to draw this conclusion. It's not safe to rely or to trust or depend on anybody else. They will only fail you. Some of you might remember the group Foreigner, and their most famous song is, I want to know what love is. And it's this yearning, searching, demand. They sing, in my life there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. And there's that revived hope that maybe I finally found the person that's going to satisfy the longing of my soul. Friends, too many believers still live with this mindset. And this mindset they even attach to their perspective of God. God really doesn't satisfy. God really can't be trusted. I know better, but I don't believe better. And what we have to do is we have to edit out the lies that corrupt our thinking and give ourselves the opportunity to feed on the truth of God's word that corrects those lies and becomes the source 
of faith cultivated by the Holy Spirit in our hearts that leads to a transformation, a transformation of a faith and a confidence in Christ that he knows us and loves us. And not just in past tense because he died on the cross, but in present tense and in future tense. See, we have been married to Christ. And our ultimate end is to spend all of eternity in the most intimate, loving relationship that could possibly be imagined with the creator of this universe. That's what awaits us. This is our hope. And when you study the love of God based on the character of God in scripture, you are not at risk of ever being failed or disappointed. He is sure. He is sure. And when you have that confidence, it's going to affect the way that you live today. Matter of fact, he becomes more attractive to you. Your affections are cultivated to know him more, to know him more intimately and deeply and, and personally. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to think about the love of God and think about it in a way that supersedes all the lies, all the things that have distorted your understanding of love. And I hope that it encourages you in your own personal study of this wonderful theme in Scripture. It was the Puritans who preached much of the love of God. Their rich and thorough treatment of God's unsearchable love is a storehouse of riches regarding the nature, the demonstration, and the implications of God's love for us. As an example, John Bunyan authored a book entitled All Loves Excelling. I brought it with me this morning. You can buy this also in the book shack. It's a treatment of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. And we'll read that text in a moment, but listen to what Bunyan writes as he examines this text. He says, The more a man knows or understands of the greatness of God's love toward him, the better he will able, be able in his heart to conceive of the excellent glory and greatness of the things that are laid up in the heavens for them that fear him. And then by contrast, he says this, and examine yourself. This may be true of you today. He said, but those little spirited Christians, meaning those who don't have a depth of joy and gladness and confidence in the love of Christ, those little spirited Christians, though they are Christian indeed, they are but in small measure acquainted with this God. And they are taken but little with the glory and blessedness that they are to go to when they die. And therefore they are neither so mortified to this world, so dead to sin, so self-denying, or so delighted in the book of God. What's he saying? If you have a small view of the love of God, there's practical implications. You're gonna struggle to mortify yourself to the temptations of this world. There may be a greater temptation to you, if I could say it that way, because somehow you believe that they will satisfy more than God will. So you're vulnerable to greater temptation. He goes on to say, they also cannot delight in the book of God, meaning that they're not convinced that the hope of relationship with Christ is found in the revelation of God. So they spend little time in the word and they occupy their energies with all other pursuits at the expense of meeting God in his word. What is this text? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter three. You've heard our own pastor preach through this text recently, but let's read it together. Paul interrupts this wonderful testimony in the book of Ephesians, talking about the great faith that has been entrusted to us and all that God wants to do in our behalf in shaping us into the image of Christ. And then he feels compelled as a pastor to pray for the Ephesians. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And this is his prayer, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend 
with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And this is the effect, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is speaking in terms of becoming more like Christ. It's, it's a sanctified life that flows out of a relationship based on a knowledge of the love of Christ. This is Paul's appeal to God on behalf of the Ephesians, that they would comprehend and know the love of Christ. He says, now it surpasses knowledge. What's the challenge there? No matter how much you pursue a study of God's love, you will never fully comprehend it because we are finite and he is not. That should encourage you, not discourage you because you cannot exhaust an understanding of the love of Christ. You can't do it. That should excite your heart in a sense to say, I need to know more. Don't be content with a Sunday school level of knowledge. Many of us came to church and we sang that famous song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And many of us stay at that level of comprehension of Jesus' love. A little Sunday school song. And then we try to live our Christian life in the strength of the flesh without that confidence of knowing the depth of Christ's love as it's extended towards us. Chapter four of this book, Paul uses the terms to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you're called. What he's saying is live now in accord with this truth in a way that's consistent with the truth of who you are and your calling is one who's been redeemed by Christ into relationship with him. Live like it, is what Paul's saying. And he goes on, verse 17, to say, and don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk. And he describes how they walk in their sinfulness and their worldly pursuits. Some of you would read that list and derive from that a very legalistic understanding of the Christian life. I'm just to put off, not do all these things. And somehow I'm supposed to do all these things that are like Christ. But Paul says the key is knowing Christ. That is the motivation. And as you begin to study the love of Christ, you begin to understand you have no ability to earn or merit his love. It's lavished upon us. So the Christian life is not one of duty. The Christian life is one of delight. If you find yourself trapped in a duty approach to the Christian life, a study of the love of Christ will be the key that unlocks your freedom from that. And then you begin to flourish with a kind of joy and hope and gladness in the midst of, yes, hardship and trials, but you know Christ and you understand his love for you. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Can you say that? And what he's saying is, it's not just that I'm imitating Christ. He is my all and all. I love him more and more. And my life is wrapped up in his life. He was even bolder in chapter 3, verse 8 of Philippians, saying, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he speaks about knowing, it's knowing in an experiential way, not a mystical way. Experiential meaning the truth becomes genuine belief and practice. He says, I count everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. One of the Puritans uh, that I've had a pleasure to read is a guy named John Durant, and John Durant was the pastor of Salisbury Cathedral in the 1600s. In his treatise on Ephesians 3, uh, he addresses this issue. It's entitled, A Discovery of Glorious Love, A Discovery of Glorious Love by John Durant. Here's what he says. He says, of all divine knowledge, the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the light of love is most precious, as tending most to the perfection of our souls. Of all divine knowledge, 
Durant writes, the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the light of love is the most precious as tending most to the perfection of our souls. So why is this necessary or important? Because it is an understanding of Christ's love, which will produce an intimate, affectionate relationship with God. And that in turn will express or enable us to express a loving heart of God towards others. How can you begin to love others like Christ loved you if you don't understand how Christ has loved you? So the opportunity for us to be instruments of grace and mercy and compassion and kindness and love and service flows out of an ever-increasing depth of comprehension of how those very things have been demonstrated towards us in Christ. Richard Sibbs, another Puritan, said it this way. He says, a man cannot look upon the love of God and of Christ in the gospel, but it will change him to be like God and Christ. So what does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 3? If you really want to live a genuine Christian life and be an instrument of God's love towards others, you need to develop a richer and fuller understanding of how you've been loved by God. And so I want to share with you some of the ultimate realities of God's love, which every believer must come to comprehend. And we'll get through as many as we can this morning, and I'll pick up next week and trust that you'll be encouraged. Reality number one, God's love is part of his essential nature. God's love is part of his essential nature. Why is this important? Because love doesn't start with you. It starts with God. It's rooted and grounded in the perfection of his character. John writes this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. But what's the cause? What's the source? What's the standard? Let us love one another, for love is, say it with me, from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So we have come to know and to believe, he says in verse 16. We believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So the first thing that we have to consider is the reality that God's love is part of his essential nature. It's not informed by us. It's not affected by us. It's not shaped by us. It has nothing to do with our lovability or lack of ability to love in response. God's love is part of his perfect, essential, divine nature. And not only is love part of his essential character, but it distinguishes him from all other gods made in the image of man. The gods that men create to worship are vindictive. They're vengeful. They're to be feared or must be appeased. But the God of Scripture reveals himself altogether different in nature, with love being the hallmark of his being. And that means even the discipline, the correction, or the trials allowed by him are always motivated by love. Therefore, this love demonstrated towards us, even in the midst of a, a fallen world, is itself selfless and others-oriented. See, some of us have adopted the idea that the world preaches that God ultimately is a God to be feared, not in a reverential awe for the sake of worship, but to be avoided, to, to maintain your distance from, because he's not safe. And yes, certainly in one sense, God's not safe. He's powerful. But it's his love that overcomes a sense of distance and fear that invites us into fellowship and intimacy with him. So what is love? Let me give you a definition. A simple definition is love is the seeking of another's good, benefit, and welfare. Implied there is a selflessness, not demanding something for self, but instead giving self away. 
for the aid and benefit of others. Love is the seeking of another's good benefit and welfare. Again, the Puritan John Durant provides this definition. It's a little longer, so if you want to write it down, I'll read it twice. He says, love is the commanding affection of the soul. Consisting in the expansion or going out of the heart toward a person or thing in worship and working for its good. I'm sorry, in wishing and working for its good. Let me read that whole thing again. John Durant says, love is the commanding affection of the soul, consisting in the expansion or going out of the heart toward a person or thing, in wishing and working for its good. That's our God. That's the God of the scriptures, who has an essential part of his nature is seeking the good of others. Aren't you thankful for that? This one reality sets the true God apart from any God crafted in the image of man. Love is rooted in the character of God. Number two, God's love is fundamentally evidenced among the loving fellowship of the three persons of the Trinity. God's love is fundamentally evidenced among the loving fellowship of the three persons of the Trinity. This is really important for you to grasp. We're dealing with some core doctrine here. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit relate to one another in perfect love. There is a relational dynamic, a social dynamic comprised in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, who dwell perfectly in unity, in love. Before man even enters into the equation, love is demonstrated perfectly in the Godhead. Millard Erickson, a theologian, helps us with this, so just listen to what he writes. He says, in a sense, God being loved virtually requires that he be more than one person. Love to be loved must have both a subject and an object. Thus, if there were not multiplicity in the person of the Godhead, God could not really be loved prior to the creation of other subjects. For love to be genuine, there must be someone whom God could love. And this would necessarily be more than mere narcissism. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves the Father. The Son loves the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves the Son. The fact that God is three persons rather than merely two also is a demonstration of the character of love. It is possible for two human persons to have a relationship of love for one another that is much more difficult for three persons to have among themselves. Why? Two persons may simply reciprocate love, not having to share the other person's love with anyone else. With three persons, there must be a greater quality of selflessness, of genuine agape love. This trinity founded upon love is a demonstration of the full nature of agape love. What's Miller Erickson pointing to? He's saying there is one God, yes, and there are three persons in the Godhead. Therefore, God exists in a social, relational dynamic within himself. There is an inner relationship that takes place within the one God and the three persons of the Godhead. And the essence of that relationship is a self-giving love and care and concern for the good of the other. We also can conclude the love of God is infinite and eternal because each member of the Trinity is infinite and eternal. We see this in the testimony of Scripture, their unity. You can look at Mark chapter 1 at the baptism of Christ and we read this, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see the three persons of the Trinity in agreement, 
in an affirmation of love, particularly as demonstrated through Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He also said in Romans 5, verse 5, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. These texts and many others point to the fact that love exists by way of demonstration within the Trinity. And all three actively demonstrate and extend that love towards us. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, you may still have your Bibles open there. We see in verses 1 through 6 a testimony to this unity in love. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called. We talked about that. Live consistent with what is true. And what does that look like? If you've been loved by God and you've been invited into a loving relationship with God, then you behave with what? Humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What is the basis of this unity and agreement? It is a love for God and a love demonstrated towards us. And so theologians refer to this reality as the intertrinitarian love of God. God first loves God and does it perfectly. And because they enjoy such a sweet fellowship and delight with one another, their motivation in creation was to share that love with man. Not because there was a deficiency in God, they dwelled in perfect love and unity. So we have to examine maybe our wrong way of thinking about why God created us. The third ultimate reality is this, God created man to enjoy the fellowship of his love, not because he needed to be loved by man. God created man to enjoy the fellowship of his love, not because he needed to be loved by man. Now we're getting at God's motivation for creating us. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25 tells the God who made the world and all that is in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands because he needs anything. Rather, it is he who gives to everyone life and breath and everything. What's Paul saying? God didn't create man because he needed something. He wasn't deficient in any aspect. He's not lacking in, in glory and worship or in any other area, particularly in an absence of love. Our God is not a needy God. Okay. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 35, or who has given him anything that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Again, Paul's saying here, listen, you can't give anything back to God that he needs. He has everything. All things are through him and for him. And this begins to correct one of those lies that we begin to assume, that somehow God saved me so that I could worship him. Well, yes, we understand that. But worship often is interpreted then just as duty, something we have to perform to give back to God, to appease him or satisfy him or to make him love us. But our worship has to be rooted in the reality that, no, he's complete in his love. He actually loves us so much, he invited us into fellowship with him. That's why he created us. The motive in creation was the motive of love, to share the joy of his love with the created being. That's an amazing thought if you meditate on it. 
it begins to alter a lot of your assumptions and a lot of your attitudes and a lot of your way of thinking about how to live the Christian life. Wait, God created me to enjoy in the kind of loving fellowship that he enjoys with the Father, Son, and Spirit? That's what's available to me through salvation? I want to know what that kind of relationship is like if he offers it to me. See, we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that God said this, let us make man in our image. Notice the plural pronoun, our image. And there are a lot of aspects of being made in the image of God. But one of the key aspects is the aspect of relationship. The plurality of the Godhead, specifically referenced there, is saying, as an image bearer, you have the capacity to enjoy relationship. Relationship with God. And before the fall, relationship with man. And you know what God said after he created man in his image? says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was good. You know what that points to? There's a kind of relationship and fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God that God defined as good before the fall. What's our definition of love? It's seeking the good of another. And God looked at the creation, and he said, this is good. This is good. One pastor by the name of Greg Brazina said it this way, and hopefully this will help you. It is important that we love God because loving God is something humanity was designed to do. But that is not why he ultimately created us. To say that God created humanity to love him is to insinuate that God has an unmet love need. God has no unmet need. He is sufficient within himself. But God is the giver and man is the receiver. Scripture says that it is God who gives life and breath in all things. God does not need humanity, but humanity needs God. For in him we live and move and have our being. It's an amazing truth. It has great hope and implications for how we think about love biblically. Ultimate reality number four, God's love, this kind of good fellowship and relationship with God, God's love was rejected by man in exchange for a love of self, breaking fellowship with God. This is the tragedy of the fall. There's a rejection of this perfect, loving fellowship. We know this from Romans chapter 1. You're familiar with the text in verse 20. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, and if love is part of his divine nature, it's been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Why would you give thanks to God? Well, we should give thanks to God if he's created us to enjoy this kind of relationship with them and the blessings that it affords. But the unbeliever rejects that. They become futile in their thinking, Paul continues, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, created gods in their own image. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves. And because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. A rejection of this relationship with God was at the root of the fall. Paul goes on Romans chapter two, verse eight to say, but for those who are self-seeking and not obeying the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, our own pastor helps us in this. Listen to what he writes. He says, now, as we know, that love of God is primarily rejected by the world. They are frankly indifferent to his common grace. They are indifferent to his goodness and beauty, which he provides for them. And their indifference is demonstrated in Romans chapter one, where it says that they are not thankful. John goes on to say, God does love the world. 
The Bible makes that clear. He loves the world with a generous, sparing, grieving, compassionate, providential, warning love that even offers the gospel. But sinners reject it. They should, by this love, be led to repentance, but they're not because of the utter wickedness of their sinful hearts. Sinners stubbornly persist in rejection and are therefore put in eternal judgment in a place called hell. What transpired at the fall? Eve chose to believe the temptation and the lie of Satan to say that something else is going to satisfy you more than God himself. Speaking to a discontentment and somehow subverting the confidence that she had everything to live a fully satisfied life in God. She believed that she wanted to be like God. She could have more than she already possessed. And that lie led her to step forward and respond to that temptation and ushered in the imputation of sin to all mankind. And so the fall was a rejection of God's love by man. And in its place, man became a lover of self. And one who loves themselves cannot participate in true, genuine, loving fellowship with another. You can't do that in your own human relationships, can you? You're, you're totally committed to your good at the expense of the other. You can't enjoy sweetness of relationship and fellowship. Imagine a more ultimate spiritual sense that that is the case. Ultimate reality number five, God sent his beloved son to reconcile sinners back into loving fellowship with the creator. And because of the familiarity of these verses I'm going to read, you might just gloss over it and stick with that Sunday school knowledge of the love of Jesus. Jesus loves me, this I know. I got it, check. Don't let your heart ever grow cold to this truth. For God so loved the world, John writes in chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Obviously, eternal life in fellowship with him. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn that world. That was not what God's aim was. But in order that the world might, through Christ, be saved. Let John 3.16 fan the flames of your heart to really understand a perfect, loving God who was rejected did what? Moved towards that man that he created to enjoy fellowship with him, to provide a solution that he might be restored to that relationship, to reconcile us back into fellowship with him. That's why you were saved. Not just to keep you out of hell, but to bring you into the fullness of relationship with him for all eternity. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, but God demonstrated his own love toward us. Whose love? His own love towards us. That's what you see demonstrated in the coming of Christ is the character and nature of godly love. He demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't, don't overlook that. While we were yet sinners, what does that tell us? Well, there's nothing that we did to earn or merit or somehow kind of become more appealing and attractive to God by way of being sinful. No, his choice to love wasn't dependent upon any behavior, choice, or action on our part. Matter of fact, he was met with rejection, wasn't he? Paul continues, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Christ says it this way in John 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
That's why he came. Just to save you from hell? No. But that we might have life and have it abundantly. I think one of the greatest texts that helps us understand really what we were saved for is Christ's own words there. On the eve of the Passover, at the Last Supper there with his disciples, he goes to pray in John 17. He says this, I'm not asking on behalf of them alone, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly united so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. What's Christ saying? I, I, I came to reconcile them back into right relationship with us. The reason for which we created them. And as they begin to understand that and live in fellowship with us, the world will look at them and wonder. And they will see something wholly different than what any other religious system or faith system or other foreign deity requires. There's going to be something qualitative differently about the believer and his relationship with us. John later in his life in 1 John chapter 1 through 4 says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Speaking of Christ coming and taking on flesh, he was in perfect fellowship with the Father in heaven, but he came to us. And we've seen him. And then verse three. And that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the message that John's saying believers have to share with the world. We're one with Christ and the Father and the Spirit. You too can be reconciled to him. And then John concludes in verse four. He says, I'm explaining these things. I'm writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. I want you to understand this. So that your joy can be rich and full and complete in Christ. We have time for one more ultimate reality, number six. God's character of love is revealed by the son who took on the form of man. We just alluded to that, that Christ came to reconcile that, but it's the demonstration of God's character of love in the life of Christ. John chapter one, again, tells us that in the beginning, the word was where? With God. And the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And with him was not anything made that was made, referring to the relationship of God and their partnership in creation. And then as you read through the text, you come to this. He was in the world, verse 10, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, I love this, he gave the right to become children of God. Now he's using a family relational term to try to describe the intimacy of fellowship that he extends to us. And we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It wasn't because of us. We didn't choose the will of our flesh. And it wasn't because of the will of somebody else or another man. It was because of the will of God. And then verse 14, it says, the way that Christ lived and died for us, in him we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And then finally, in verse 18, it says, no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What's he saying? Christ revealed what God-like love looks like. A love even for enemies, when there's nothing that's being offered back that causes them to be attractive or to, to earn or merit his favor. 
And John again later in his life, 1 John chapter 4, 9 through 10 says, By this the love of God was manifested or revealed to us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Aren't you thankful that God's demonstration of love towards you and me is not dependent or contingent upon what we offer him? You've got to get that into your minds and your hearts. It's the key to moving from duty to delight. It's the key of what motivates us in obedience. It's more than just gratitude from a distance. It's about affection for the one who's lavished an unqualified kind of love on us that we might enjoy relationship with him. Well, there are many more principles I look forward to sharing with you or realities, but I just want to invite you at this time to bow your head as we close. We talked about the songs that unbelievers write, but you can go back through the history of the church, and as God has worked and revealed this truth to the hymn writers who've come before us, we've heard these great truths in songs like, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Or how deep the Father's love for us. Or more love to thee, O Christ. Or even, oh, how he loves you and me. See, the heart that understands the love of Christ swells up to to celebrate that in song and to express that in words of affection and worship. Years ago, I heard our pastor say he was at a dinner table with Bill Gaither one of the best known and most prolific Christian musicians of our generation. And he asked Bill at the table, what are the greatest lyrics of any Christian hymn or song? He said Bill didn't hesitate. His immediate response was the lyrics of the song, The Love of God, are the greatest lyrics ever penned by a believer. I'm going to play that song now with your heads bowed. And I want you to take a time of meditation, reflect on these great truths, and then we'll close in prayer.